welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Claudia Rosas, who is a lecturer in critical studies and education at the University of Auckland. And I've invited Claudia onto the podcast to discuss teacher education. Uh, as some listeners will be aware, I've recently published a report from the New Zealand Initiative on initial teacher education with Stephanie Martin. And we were fairly critical in that report of university-based teacher education. So I'd like to explore some of those issues with Claudia. So welcome to the podcast, Claudia, and perhaps I'll I'll just ask you to briefly let listeners know about your background and how you came to initial teacher education. Good morning, Michael, and thank you for the opportunity for a conversation about ITE. It is something I think that for both of us is really important. How I came to teacher education is really kind of like how I came to teaching. It's a bit always been a bit of a backwards journey is how I describe it, because I actually studied a BA in education. The, the intention was to become an educational psychologist. But by the time I got to the end of the BA, I was more compelled by arguments being presented in sociology and philosophy of education. So I stayed on and, and did my MA, mostly in sociology and history of, of education, as it happens. And it was only really then that I went into teaching. So I had studied education for a while. It felt like it was time to test the theory, to go into a school and see if things that I had learned could be sustained in any way. So I did that for a few years. I I became a secondary English teacher and went back to my old high school, Aorere College in Mangere East. And then after a few years, I guess it was time to go back to the thinking, to reading, to thinking, to talking and writing about education in critical ways. And that's how I ended up working in initial teacher education. So it's a very long love affair and many years, I guess, of reading and, and studying and thinking about education. And how, how long have you been at the University of Auckland in this current role? Uh, since, I think, between 2005 and 2006. Okay, I, so I, yeah. nearly two decades of teacher education behind you. I've, yes, I've done that more than being in a school. And yeah. I know that you've read our report, Who Teaches the Teachers?, So you'd be aware of some of the criticisms that Stephanie and I made of initial teacher education programs in universities. And it might be worth just going through those because perhaps some of them you would see as being addressable through that model and others you may not agree are flaws at all. Uh, Perhaps a, a good one to start with is the practicum. This is the the time that teachers and training spend in schools gaining practical experience. And we had a few criticisms of the way universities are doing that. One was just uh, insufficient time in classrooms. Some teacher education programs around the country give teachers and training as little as 16 weeks in classrooms, yeah. which seemed to us very thin. And connected with that is the issue of how they are mentored when they're in those practica. And just for listeners who may not have seen the report, the teachers in training are mentored by associate teachers who are staff usually in the schools where they're placed. And some of them are very good and some of them not so good. And and this is a problem to some extent brought about by the fact that any teacher with at least two years experience who is fully registered can be an associate teacher. And it's probably fair to say it's not a sought after position a lot of the time. And so people put their hands up for it and they're selected to do it. And then there was the issue of the connection between the associate teacher and the staff who run the course within the university and the extent to which that that is a solid kind of connection and that things are well joined up. 
So would you like to address those points, Claudia? Sure. The issue with practicum and time in schools is is something that has, I think, been an issue in ITE for a while. If we think back, actually, when I did my iTeacher training, and I did it through the University of Auckland when they first started doing that, we did actually have longer practicums. And it was, you had Monday to Thursday in school, and then you had Friday at university, and they were longer, and it sort of allowed for that integration between theory and practice. And then if we think about something like the MTeach, for example, and what Hekia Parato, the then Minister of Education, was saying to us about practicum and, and what it needed to look like for students, the expression that she used was clinical practice, right? So there had to be this a, a more extensive clinical experience for teachers in schools. So um, just for the sake of listeners, the MTeach, this was a master's level qualification yes. that many universities introduced during Parata's tenure as Minister of Education in the mid-2010s. That's right. So, I mean, it is, I I think that it is clearly, there has certainly been a shift in the last decade or over a decade for a desire to have students, pre-service teachers, spend more time in schools. And I think our current programs, for example, have a day, students simply have, I think it's Wednesdays in schools, where students, pre-service teachers, are spending more time in schools. That's probably an issue that needs to to be addressed, the the amount of time that teachers spend in schools. But as you say, it depends on the quality of this, of the kind of mentoring that they're getting. And it kind of creates a role, doesn't it? It creates a new role for teachers in schools, associate teachers, who might be a little bit more than associate teacher. They become mentors. And we can see that, for example, in the shift, which is really interesting to me, that shift from going to, you know, we did ITE, initial teacher education, in a very similar way for many, many years. And then we started to, to kind of interrupt that and bring in new models. And with the Master of Teaching, there was this desire for a closer proximity between universities and schools and for students to have that clinical experience. But now, of course, the funding is going towards programs like Teachers in Schools, employment-based training, which again is, is creating a new kind of associate teacher, a new kind of mentoring that's required for teachers in schools. So I think the issue of, of practicum and how long students spend in schools is clearly something that is that has risen to the surface. And it is being both in terms of what the ministry is funding, the kind of ITE programs that they are signaling that they want to put funding into, and certainly the conversations that take place, um, and say, for example, in my university, are very much concerned with how we think about practicum and how we maximise those opportunities for students to to be in schools. Yes, I mean, there are some alternative models around the country, and you, you alluded to one of them just then. There's a couple of groups of schools in Auckland who are running programmes, I think in partnership with the University of Waikato, whereby teachers are employed pretty much full-time in the classroom while they complete a qualification online through the university. So that's one alternative approach. The other significant one, I would say, is that run by the New Zealand Graduate School of Education in in Christchurch, which is a non-university provider. And I don't think they call that an employment-based model. Rather, teachers in training do spend much more time in the classroom. And there... And this is a model I particularly like. The teacher educators from the graduate school go into the classroom on a regular basis and observe and mentor and coach and critically also assess. So the whole thing is very well connected up. Now, it wouldn't be out of the question for universities to do things that way, although I suspect that the way universities are funded 
doesn't help. To what extent do you think that funding is an issue for running the best quality teacher education through universities? Yes, it's a huge issue because where the ministry puts money in terms of their their current version of what it means to educate a pre-service teacher has an enormous impact on on what we can do. And in fact, the University of Auckland is also running a teachers and schools program with secondary. So it's only for secondary at the moment. But if we think back, I, I was quite heavily involved in the Master of Teaching Qualification, not the primary one, but the secondary version of it. And that's exactly because that's what the ministry was asking for. They were asking for substantially different programs and they wanted you know, extended time in schools, more a focus on clinical practice. And so we had the, the university liaison role. It was a ULT. I can't quite remember what it was called, but I was one, which meant that I spent a large part of my week in schools, in a particular school. So I, I also developed a relationship with the school a close relationship with a small group of students of of pre-service teachers who were in the school. And I got to observe, you know, lots of lessons. And as you say, do some of that assessment that was shared with with their mentors. But that was a much more expensive program to run. And the ministry, of course, provided additional funding for a couple of years when the master's programs were introduced. But then that was withdrawn. And I think most of the programs were then watered down because the universities couldn't afford to run them in that original form anymore. That certainly happened at Victoria, where I was at the time. So I guess if we want to have that kind of program, the ministry or the TEC or whoever it is needs to put its money where its mouth is. And you can't do those things without the the right funding. And I guess, you know, this is another issue for me about having teacher education within universities is that it is then subject to the priorities of the university. When we had standalone teachers colleges, teacher education was what they did. So they wouldn't cut teacher education because it was what they did, whereas universities do a million different things. And at the moment, of course, the university is under a huge amount of financial pressure and they're cutting staff and teacher education is just one of many things, not particularly high prestige for universities, and they're they're likely to take the knife to it. Well, staffing is definitely an issue, and that was an issue when we were running the MTeach, because it it was a very intense program. And so you, you need a certain amount of staff, for example, to be able to be engaged in that kind of work and, and say, university liaison work. But the idea that, you know, that universities, I, I mean, I, I get your point, what you're saying in terms of university priorities, right, in terms of research, the PBRA fund and so on, and how universities are funded. I understand the point there. But in terms of having a kind of freedom in the context of initial teacher education, so much of what we do is governed externally from outside of the university. So the teaching council, for example, uh, they play a really important role in in governing how ITE takes place as well. So ITE is quite an entangled space, and it's not just about the university and the university priorities. There are government priorities, and there are teaching council priorities as well. Uh, you know, so there's lots of external forces that are always shaping what we are supposed to do. Yes. So it's not quite the autonomy that you might think that it is. I mean, is. That, that, certainly the, the role of the teaching council is something that we looked at in the, in the report and we were pretty critical of it. The main thing for us was the standards for the teaching profession, which are supposed to condition teacher education. But when you look at those standards, I mean, I think it's, it's very generous to call them standards at all. 
because there's nothing in them that constitutes a rigorous requirement that one could assess against. They're too vague and they're too broad-ranging. And again, we could compare those with the the standards that the New Zealand Graduate School of Education uses, which is quite a long list of very specific teaching behaviours that they need to see to be fluent and consistent for a, for a teacher in training to, to graduate. And of course, there's mm-hmm. nothing in principle to stop universities using a similar approach, except that perhaps their staff can't afford the time to get out into schools as often as the graduate schools teacher educators do because academics have other requirements like running research programs and helping with the admin of the university and so on. Uh, I mean, academic staff are, are very busy, but I, I would say that we those of us involved in ITE take it very seriously and often at the expense of other things. So I don't know that it's necessarily the this, this situation where academic staff are, you know, it's lower priority for them personally. Not, not for them personally, but due to the pressures on them from the other aspects of their jobs, whereas the, for the teacher educators at the graduate school, that's all they do. Yeah. The constraints around that, for me, are actually not so much about those other pressures on people working in ITE. It's more about the structure of the programs and what the structure of the programs allow or don't allow. I think the constraint is probably tighter there than, you know, the the research demands and so on. And I'm not, I guess, I'm not against the idea that people involved in pre-service teacher education should be engaged in a, in a level of scholarship. It might not be as, a, as an intense research program as, as other academics have. Perhaps, I'd, I mean, I'd, I don't know, but ITE itself is something that should be researched. I mean, there should be. Oh, you know, I, I completely agree. You know, should be producing that research. Yeah. So I see it a little bit as anti-education, actually, to suggest that people who are involved in pre-service teacher education are not engaged in some level of scholarship. Well, certain, I, I certainly you know, think actually, they should be research informed, whether they need to conduct original research is is a slightly different question. Certainly teacher education should be research informed. Perhaps that's a good opportunity to move to the content of the teacher education programs because I've no doubt that university programs are research informed but I have some questions about the kind of research that's informing them which to my personal experience and certainly if you peruse the New Zealand journals of education it is very heavily geared towards qualitative research there's yes. quite there's quite little in the way of large scale quantitative studies that really get to grips with what works in terms of pedagogy and you know that you mentioned before that you nearly became an educational psychologist and and that's the kind of work that I'm talking about where we really get to grips with the way the human brain learns it's, it's sometimes called the science of learning and mm. when we surveyed the 220 odd courses that comprise the initial teacher education programs in New Zealand universities, we found only two courses in all of those 220 that seemed to be geared towards anything like the science of learning. So it seemed to me rather out of balance and and the, the vast bulk of them were either kind of core things which you would expect like curriculum and pedagogy, we should see plenty of that in teacher education, but there was a a very large chunk as well that were concerned with what's generally known as social justice. 
Now, this is kind of a what I see, see as an ideological approach rather than necessarily a research-informed approach to education. Can you comment on that? Because I think it's something you've got some, some views about, and we, we may have some debate about the merits of that and, and what we should be doing in teacher education courses. Yes, I can comment on that, but of course you've touched on lots of things, Indeed. Michael. Um, take, take your time and go through them. <laughs> I'm trying to order them in, in my head because there's the first thing is this idea about sort of qualitative versus quantitative and, and what's happening in research yep. in the broader education space in New Zealand. Then there's an issue about learning and the science of, of learning and that that's, I'm guessing, in your view, the heart of ITE, the beating heart of it should be around that. Around I, I think it should of- certainly be much more prominent than it is. And right. A, a case in point is teaching children to read. I, I mean, we, yes. we can come back to that. Yep. And then there's what I'm calling the social justice zeitgeist at the moment, which seems to have taken quite substantive form in the last few years. And it's something I'm I'm, I'm trying to think about, I guess, as someone who went into education with a broad commitment to social justice and to now kind of reckon with this, the shape and the form that it has taken. So where to start? Well, perhaps with the question of the right. kind of research that's dominant in education and so what's your view about the lack of quantitative studies in, in education? Well, I, I, I attended your presentation. Well, it was an Anzari presentation with Stuart McNaughton and yourself. And I think it was, was it Quant Person from the Ministry of that, Education? That's right, yes. And it does seem, I mean, it does seem to be skewered towards qualitative. It seemed to me that all three speakers were in agreement that there was a, a need for, for qualitative research or and perhaps for it to take more prominence. In, you mean in quite quantitative? Quantitative, yeah. Research. I mean, that seemed it seemed to me. So I'm not a quantitative researcher, so I'm, I might not pick these things up because I'm in. In fact, I'm not really even necessarily qualitative. I probably do a bit more theoretical. I, I guess I operate more in the space of social theory. So it seemed it seemed to me that all three were in agreement that this that this is an important thing that quantitative research is valuable and that it might it, it needs perhaps a bit more attention. But I guess there's a, a kind of belief in it. There's a sense. My my issue with it is that there, there is a sense that it can then become the truth of everything. It kind of captures the landscape. I mean, and you might argue, well, actually, qualitative research has currently captured the landscape. I, I would um, argue that, yes. So that, that may well be a fair critique. So I guess it's about the balance. It's about sustaining a balance between these two things where where one isn't capturing the truth. And that's, so when we, people talk about the science of learning, there, there's a kind of a, a built-in assumption that this is the truth of everything, and that it accounts for everything, that it can explain everything that happens in education, that happens in classrooms. And I, I would be nervous about that claiming all of the landscape right. and all of the conversation about education. So, science do, doesn't actually claim that. So, science is not about establishing the truth it, with a capital T. It's about the best explanation of the data before us that we can manage at a particular time. And then we go on to test that further and test it further. That That's the scientific mission ra- rather than establishing once and for all the truth. And I guess the, the issue with quantitative research to me is that if we want to have a sound idea of what works, then we need to be able to disentangle different influences and variables on what we value in education. 
Yep. Now, the way to do that is, in fact, large representative samples where we're able to use that sample as a model of the whole and then test something out and compare it with a control condition where we don't do that. And in that way, we're able to actually distinguish what works from what doesn't. Now, I hasten to add that in order to do that, we have to choose certain ways of measuring what we value. And that's where the question of measurement validity comes in. Have we got the right measure? Is it missing important things? Those considerations must be in place. I would also add that it's very helpful to have a qualitative angle when we do a large-scale quantitative study because that does allow us to enrich the picture somewhat. So we call that mixed methods, as you'd probably be aware, but for the sake of our listeners. And I think that's a very strong way to actually design research in any kind of social science, and including education. Yes. And I guess possibly what we're doing is we're thinking about different things, because I'm thinking you were thinking quite, cl- you're, you're sticking quite close to this notion of, of learning, right, of, of students learning things in the club, learning content, knowledge in the classroom. And I'm, I'm thinking about education more broadly. Because to me, what happens when you get into that quantitative space is that you can have an overemphasis, I think, about what education can do to address issues in society, to address inequalities in society. There can be a slight overemphasis. And I want to be really clear. I do think that there are better ways of teaching. And I think that we can know some of these ways. So I'm not anti, I'm not anti-quantitative um, work at all or even the notion that we can learn to be better teachers. I think, as I say, I think there are better ways of teaching and that we can know some of these things. But I'd, I would be cautious about an overemphasis, that the what works argument, right? That we can get it right. I think we can get it mostly right, but it mm-hmm. simply doesn't account for anything, for, for everything that happens in education. And when we think about the sorts of social patterns that we see, right, the, de- the demographic patterns, the sorts of social patterns, which I guess is what sociologists are interested in, the social patterns about who is doing well at school and who is not. I don't know that the, the kind of the focus on the individual and, and, and the brain science accounts for these sorts of broad social patterns about how who does well and who doesn't. And so I guess that's where the theoretical or the qualitative work plays an important role because it's trying to ask questions about how these inequalities happen in the first place. How might they be sustained through schooling? Uh, you know, or how, or how do they reproduce inequalities that are, that are already in place in society? So again, to be very clear, I think that there are better ways of teaching. I think that these ways can be knowable. But I think if we if we believe in if we kind of stay trapped within that model, it's very easy then to overemphasize what education can do. And, and there's a turning away from a much broader social context that's actually producing these sorts of patterns in the first place. Right. I don't know if well, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, so I'd make couple of comments about that. One is that I don't think that teaching is just a science. I, th- I think it is, it is a science. It is also an art and it is also a craft. It has all three of those aspects, or it should have, to be as strong as it can be. 
Yeah. Just as a, do- a good doctor is like that, the, d- the doctor knows the physiology of the human body and, and all of the diagnostic criteria for various ailments and so on. But they also have to be re- able to relate to the person who, th- who they're dealing with and they have to have a good technique in terms of bringing to bear their scientifically informed knowledge to that person. So I would see that's a reasonable analogy to, to teaching. And at the moment, I just think that the that scientific knowledge is lacking in, in many teachers. And, and I spoke about teaching children to read before, and, and certainly our literacy data are in a dreadful state. And I think we're now realising that that is because we have not paid attention to the science of reading. Uh, and where teachers are starting to do so, they're seeing amazing growth in results. And to connect that to your, your very important point about social justice and that whether education reproduces inequality or whether it breaks cycles of inequality and poverty, I would say that the best way to do that is to use highly effective teaching methods. And the reason I say that is because if a child from a well-off family is struggling at school, his or her parents are likely to notice that. Perhaps they're likely to be more educated themselves and to be able to intervene and the process and perhaps teach their own children to read or to be able to afford a private school or a tutor or something like that. Whereas the kids who come from less well-off communities may well lack those opportunities. Certainly their parents won't be able to afford the additional resources and may themselves you know, perhaps struggle to read or, or something like that. So to me, the, the way to equalise opportunity in society is to ensure that every child is the recipient of the best teaching methods available. It's not the whole story because there are other angles, as you say. I mean, schools are not just environments where cognitive learning takes place. There's social and emotional learning too. That's part of the that, that to me is more part of the background of the of the school is its its community ethos and so on. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, teaching is really important. Knowing being the teacher and being allowed to be the teacher in front of the classroom, um, or in and among students, is really important. But I guess again, and 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 again, Michael, to be as I keep saying, this is not anti-effective teaching. It's not anti. The quantitative stuff it's just the story that it tells and and to me it, it still is only telling part of the story because what it does as i say it's a kind of overemphasis that just what works will fix everything it will fix some things but it, it assumes a, a quite a it adopts a, a neutral a neutral view of schooling and a neutral view of curriculum a neutral view of education and and i and i don't believe that it is and so, could you could you elaborate a little problems? more what you mean by neutral? Well, for example, if it's simply about getting the the science right, and and getting the method right, it that doesn't take into consideration how other things might contribute to ongoing inequality in society. So it doesn't, for example, take into account how curriculum or curriculum content itself might be contributing to particular patterns or in terms of the ways in which it legitimates it legitimates particular forms of knowledge and delegitimizes other forms of knowledge now i know that's getting into a scary space for you because then it sounds like i'm talking in this very pluralistic postmodern way about knowledges and i'm not re- i'm not actually i'm not really going in that direction at all but i am saying that there are other things that structures and processes 
that are operating in schools and within the education system that can contribute to why some students do well and why some students might not do well. And I and I just would always want to keep that conversation open for pre-service teachers, for teachers, not just for people in universities who are engaged in that work, but for real life teachers who are in front of real life students in real life classrooms. I, I would want to sustain that that conversation for them. And I guess what that brings us to really is what is our conception of teaching? And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's we're coming at that from different perspectives. Do we have a what I would call a narrow conception of teaching, which is I again would call a more technical instrumentalist view of teaching, which is getting getting the methods right, figuring out what works, having been informed by that science of learning, or do we have a broader conception of teaching, which is a, a more intellectual task for teachers to be engaged in, and, and it draws them in to a much broader and more important conversation about the education project. Which, which is never settled, right? The education project is never settled. It's always contested. Its meanings are always up for grabs. And I guess my conception of teaching, which is why I would advocate for universities to have, for university-based ITE, which does not, I don't mean by that, that they just go and spend all their time at university and have very limited time in school. I don't mean that at all. But that it, that universities do have a role, that scholarship has a role to play in the forming of teachers because that allows a much broader conception of who the teacher is, a much more intellectually engaged teacher. Yeah, well, I, I mean, as I said before, in relation to my doctor analogy, I, I don't think that the technique enough alone is enough. I, I, I think, obviously, a, a teacher needs to have a lot of uh, capacity to form relationships, both with the, the, the students and with their colleagues. And they, I mean, a school is a community and it's a community within a broader community with whom they need connections. I, I wouldn't dispute any of that. Uh, however, I, I do think that the the core of the teaching role is the transmission of knowledge and disciplines from one generation to the next. And I'm yeah. reminded of, of the work of Michael F.D. Young, actually. I don't know if you're aware of him. He, uh, he's a social yeah. sociologist. He, you, you would you, be a, our can't listener. do sociology of education. Of course you do. My, my apologies. Yes. But our, our listeners probably don't know who Michael F.D. Young is. He's a, he's a British sociologist of education, and he, he moved quite a long way in his career from a very what you might call social constructivist view of knowledge towards what he calls critical realism, and he coined this idea of powerful knowledge, which is the knowledge that has the power to break cycles of poverty. But he also cautioned against an under-socialized view of knowledge, which is to say we can take a discipline like mathematics, for example, and see it as an important thing for children to learn. But we also need to take into account how accessible the social background of a child makes a discipline like that and I, and I think that does need to be taken seriously I, I, so it's not just a, a cognitive exercise I, I take your point about that I, I think though what I'm saying Michael is, is, is not quite that and of course Michael Young's work was seminal in, in the new sociology of education in the 70s where the, the questions that he's raising and other people in that movement are raising are about precisely the sorts of things I was talking about, how structures and processes, curriculum in particular, are reproducing social inequality and that particular kinds of knowledge were not valued in school. And then, of course, many years later, 
in, an, in a way that I think shows a level of moral courage, actually, uh, to, to mm. say, actually, I've, I've sort of I've changed my mind. I yeah. think that that, you know, there is knowledge that is really important. But that's not quite what I'm what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I'm thinking here, I'm drawing on the work of, say, educational philosopher Gert Biester, who talks about the, the learn what he calls the learnification of education. And and he attributes this to, to multiple contexts. One of them is co-constructivism, right? And this idea that students are learning, managing their own learning and so on and that the teacher is more of a guide on the side. But he also locates it in a, in a number of different contexts, including the political economy and neoliberalism. And what he, what he's saying is, it's for a start, he's talking about the importance of the teacher in the classroom, right? So he talks about releasing the teacher from learning and to have a, a, a conception, a really fully-fledged conception of teaching. And this, to me, this would seem like a really important thing in ITE because I, I wonder if what we've done is we've taken a theory of learning and it has become a default learning theory of teaching. And I always think of teaching and learning as two quite different things. I know they're connected, but I, you know, I always think we need a, a, a type of, of working theory of what it means to teach. But what he's talking about is not so much here in the, in the context of, of knowledge. He's talking about what is, what is education's job? What is education for? What is the educational task? And I think for some of us, the transmission of knowledge or the, the best that's been taught, you know, because knowledge really matters, right? It matters to culture, it matters to society. I think for lots of us, that's part of what's important. But it's actually about asking the question of what is education for? And, and a, a broad conception of teaching, therefore, needs to engage with that broader question of, of what is the purpose of education? What is its role in society? That's beyond simply having access to, to knowledge. Whatever that knowledge may be, I don't know if that makes well, that, sense. Well, and that connects back to the question of curriculum, right? What knowledge we value, and I think it this is, but it isn't just knowledge, though, Michael. It's not just curriculum. It's about what does it do to the individual? What, what, how does education shape us in a particular way? So, what, one of the things, for example, that I think about a lot in terms of education, and I think about this more so than I think about education and social justice, which is quite radical for me as well. But I, I, I think about the importance of education is something that draws us out of ourselves, that stops us from, from in fact, Biester talks about it as, as being solely with ourselves. That's how he expresses it. Of course, that's connected to knowledge. And of course, you think about what is the knowledge that's going to take us outside of ourselves. But it's a broader mission for education. And that's the conversation that I think teachers, pre-service teachers should be initiated into. Well, I think yeah. that we should continue this conversation in the future and perhaps in, in a few months we'll invite you back for, for another conversation because I would like to talk to you about those broader purposes of education and we may have more common ground there than you might think. I, w I was quite impressed by Ivan Illich's book in 1970 uh, called Deschooling yes. Society and that could be a good conversation starter too and and also the ways in which curricula are constructed and what they contain and don't contain all of those could be wonderful things to talk about unfortunately we are out of time today and i could yeah. i could spend much longer with you and and i think it would be good to do so in the future so look claudia thank you very much for joining us on the new zealand initiative podcast today thank you <laughs>